0: Good evening and welcome to our new programme, Book Club. Every month a book will be chosen for review and the panel and myself will discuss in great detail. The book we are about to review this evening is called Your Life in My Hands, a junior doctor's story written by Rachel Clarke and has been in the Sunday Times bestseller list. So now let's listen to the panel, Jean Fairburn, Felicity Radcliffe and Alice Goulding. Now... First review will be Felicity. I was trying to
1: think of one word to sort of summarise the book. And the word that I came up with was relentless. I thought it was hard-hitting and it didn't let up really that the whole time. I thought the beginning was very powerful when she describes being under fire in a war zone in quite a, ha- a hard-hitting way and then says, but it doesn't compare with some of my most challenging times in the NHS. I thought that was quite a strong beginning. And also where she describes her first time on the ward, where she has an emergency and doesn't know how to deal with it. And she runs down, I think, four flights of stairs looking for the consultant to come and help. I thought that was very involving and very powerful. As the book sort of progressed, I found it became a bit repetitive, but she does say it over and over again. And I sometimes found the sort of polemic got a bit repetitive for me. The bits I enjoyed most were the human interest bits. And I could have done with a bit more of that. Some more of the stories about about the patients she treated. I found the bit in the hospice was very moving and very involving. And I would have quite liked more of that kind of human interest in inverted commas. Having said that, I thought it was well written. I mean, it obviously comes across very strongly that she used to write for a living and it is well written and well structured. And obviously some of the things that she says are quite shocking, in particular about how people were discouraged from speaking out if they had concerns. So there was stuff that was shocking. And obviously, given what we've been through over the past year... It's kind of impossible not to feel real sort of sympathy with her and her fellow doctors. What I found I was doing was I was comparing it a bit with another book that I read quite recently by another junior doctor or ex-junior doctor. It's called This Is Going To Hurt by Adam Kaye. And he took a very different approach. His was a lot more sort of case study driven and he tackles it through humour. So he used humour to very great effect. And what I found was when he got serious, it had real impact because it was kind of tempered with that humour. And I found Rachel Clarke's treatment a bit humor Yes, I agree with you. It didn't quite have the same power for me as the Adam Kaye book, even though he treated the whole story of the NHS with more levity for a lot of the time. He really got the point across, I would say, more powerfully than she does, even though she does write very powerfully. So I enjoyed it. As I say, relentless would be my summing up word. But obviously, it's very topical, given what we've all been through. And I'm sure you you can't fail to sympathise with the incredible hardship that these doctors and nurses go through. So, yeah, those are the main points from me.
0: She comes from a journalist back, a medical background, but then she went into journalism, and she had a lot of worldwide experience. And then she came back and decided to go into medicine. And obviously, what came through the whole of this book was the underfunding from the NHS. So it did get quite political. What do you think, Alice? Oh, I mean,
2: I, I agree. I, it was very politically motivated. Some of the stuff that went goes on behind the scenes that you don't know about in hospitals, you just assume that everybody. Knows exactly what they're doing, and they're all professionals, and they, they just go about their task calmly and all the rest of it. But actually, and it's they're, they're like swans on a on a river, aren't they? They're graspingly running their little feet, are paddling away underneath against the stream, basically because they, they, they. I mean, the NHS. We all know the NHS has been underfunded for years and years and years. So, and it's catching up. It's catching up now that we've got a bit much bigger population. We've got much bigger population of more sick people overweight people and I count myself in one of those we all need to watch what we're doing and eating and making sure that we are staying healthy because otherwise we do put pressure on the NHS and because of the underfunding they haven't been able to manage to do all the treatment when we're sort of up against it you either die from Covid or you die from cancer because they can't cope with doing both so in that respect I think the book was quite you could sort of get across all the political things that she was sort of saying in that about the underfunding everybody can relate to that having been through this last year I think but yes I, I mean I thought it was very well written you could definitely tell she was a journalist it was it was straight straightforward and to the point the bits that I liked the most in it were the some of the more the, the stories about some of the operating procedures I I love the the leeches on the eyeballs I thought that was absolutely fantastic how to thought that one out and the other one that I thought was really interesting was how they Somebody had a, a, a brain hematoma and they needed to get all the blood out. And the only way they could do it was by cooling it down. They sort of basically took the person's blood out and cooled it down and put it back in and cooled it down before they operated. And I just thought that was nasty. It's amazing what medicine can do these days. And some of these sorts of things were fascinating. So the other thing that uh, really struck me was the, was the thing she was going on about the Zumba and when she was going on about it, basically because lots of doctors are under so much pressure and there's lots lot of high they've got a really seriously high rate of suicide in the medical pre- profession because they're under so much pressure and stress and because of the, the, the job and all the rest of it that they're doing so so to address this they said oh you know you have to do these well-being things and do zumba in your lunch hours <laughs> doctors they when do they have as Three hour to do Zumba I mean how ridiculous is that I mean people the people who vent these sort of things they just they just don't know what's going on at all do they I just thought that that, that summed it up Zumba just basically summed up the entire book for me was <laughs> fancy suggesting that to overworked doctors that they had a spare hour to go and do
0: Zumba what about the stories the human stories that she got across Alice did that did that Yes, uh-huh, yeah. I mean, yes,
2: absolutely. I think I, I did think those were the best bits of the book. Actually, were some of the, the the stories that she told about some of the patients, and and also it was quite interesting as well. I, I, um, the way that some doctors were absolutely fantastic and had a wonderful bedside manner, whereas other doctors just they just didn't have have a clue. You know, I mean, fancy standing at the end of the the bed and saying your, I won't use the the expletive that they used, basically this person was going to die. This poor person had no idea what this doctor was talking about. And he's just sort of just get palliative care team involved. But there are some doctors who have a fantastic bedside manner and there are other doctors who step back, don't they To because otherwise it can just probably get to them a lot. So, but I I found that was quite interesting as well, how different people, different doctors coped with different situations and how they were with their patients.
0: Okay, Alice, thank you very much indeed. Now we'll turn to Jean. Hello, Jean. How are you this evening?
3: Absolutely wonderful.
0: Good, good. And so, what did you think of Rachel Clark's book, Your Life in My
3: Hands? Very interesting. I thought it was... I thought if I was going to put it in a category, it was a cross between human interest, political... party political broadcast. I thought i actually became somewhat bored in the end and then i thought let's look at it a bit wider i mean you've got human interest she was a journalist so the bit at the beginning as people have said about uh, when she was cowering she was in rwanda wasn't she something like that it was interesting because she was humiliated basically and i thought as a doctor you are praised humiliated um scared the whole gamut of emotions which I thought must be a terrible strain but the thing is we've got a wonderful national health service some everybody agrees but before we had it I thought well think back to when if it wasn't there how would we be
0: we'd we'd be in a terrible state
3: <laughs> we would be we would be but there again there are great lacunas like If you're fighting a pandemic, cancer treatment can go to hell. You know how difficult it is to get face to face. And that's been a year, hasn't it? Which is a hell of a long time. So yes, it is underfunded. But at the same time, the Labour Party political always attacking the government. And I thought, you know, it's time. I think before we actually reform, give it more money, We have to insist that people take responsibility, like obesity. You can eat yourself into, well, a coma, can't you? You can eat yourself to death. And yet they are perceived as no different to those who have unfortunate conditions that come out of the blue, that they have no control. So I think. Although I don't mean to corral fat people into herdish herds and put them in a field and then starve them. <laughs> It'd be quite a good idea, but of course I can't say that and nobody in their right mind would say it, but I mean, I just think, and also because it was published 2017 I believe, that is just after the vote out Brexit, so there was... I think if that vote ha- hadn't happened, there would have been less party political. And the other thing I thought—I'll be quiet for a minute. The other thing I thought was how absolutely wonderful nurses are. Doctors get paid more, obviously, but um, my daughter-in-law is a nurse, and she's been to Syria, and she's been treating uh, women in Syria who have never seen a doctor ever, and they've got sort of five kids going through the door. I thought, well, how lucky we are, really. We might moan. But it is a fine service.
0: It is indeed. So, the book, did you
3: manage to get through it all? I actually gave up three courses way there.
0: Right, okay. I
3: read read the end pages and thought, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I sort of filled in the rest. Right. But she does write well because, of course, she is a journalist.
0: Yes. But I thought she
3: should have maybe left that behind.
0: So, you found it too political? really yeah Mm. did you agree fliss i think it it probably
1: it probably was a tad political and i i think um and i think given when we were reading it it did feel a bit like preaching to the converted because i think everyone's so much more aware now of the debt that we owe the nhs i think two, two things for me one was Comparing it with my own experience when I was in hospital for a week just over a year ago, I think that description of swans with the feet paddling furiously underneath must be absolutely spot on. Because when I was in hospital, I really did seem incredibly calm, measured. You know, I always felt I was in the best possible hands. But I'm sure some of that furious flapping must have been going on underneath, but it just was not visible to me as a patient. Yes. And I'm eternally grateful for that, because I just felt completely confident that I was being well looked after. I think the other thing would made me think that given that the book tells you the incredible pressure that the NHS is under, it makes it even more amazing how the vaccination programme has been rolled out, has been kind of pulled out of nowhere and actually has has been rolling out so successfully and i think the sheer number of volunteers that came that came forward is probably testament to how everyone now is probably a lot more behind rachel clark's arguments than they were when the book was first written
0: thank you ladies we're now going into a commercial break and we'll discuss it further in a couple of minutes Welcome back to March's Book Club with our reviewers, Felicity Brennan, Jean Fairburn and Alice Goulding. And we are reviewing Rachel Clark's book, Your Life in My Hand, A Junior Doctor's Story. So we're going to go straight to Alice, who's going to tell us what she thought her fellow reviewers thought about that book. I,
2: I agree that the, the book was a political book, but I have to say I, I did agree with an awful lot of things that she said because my dad was a doctor. I've got uncles and aunts who are all doctors. From that respect, they have been trying to work for the NHS for years and years and years, and, years, and they've been up against it. And so they know all the sort of pitfalls and all the rest of it. And these poor doctors do get very, very tired. And, and then I think a lot of it was about these seven days, having an, a seven-day NHS, and the fact that consultants didn't work at weekends and things like that. And I know, because my uncle w- was a consultant radiologist for years, and he definitely worked weekends. So it, all these sort of political things that the, the, the government would sort of say weren't true, and that was one of the things that she highlighted a lot, that it's all spin, and it depends on how you spin things as to what results you come out. And it's like statistics, there's lies and I don't know what the saying is, there's lies and statistics. That's what it is. Anybody can spin anything, can't they, to make it, make it suit themselves. A lot of the things that she said, you know, I, as employers, and as Felicity said, it's reaching to the converted, because we, we all want our NHS to work. We all, we all rely on it, and and we'd be lost without it. I mean, just look at what happens in America. My daughter was supposed to be going to America last year for, for holidays, and because of COVID, she was in the car on the way to the airport, and the insurance company said that they would not cover medical expenses if she got COVID. So she couldn't go to America, because yeah. she couldn't risk being stuck over there with a million-pound medical bill. So you know we just don't know how lucky we are in the NHS I mean the the drugs I mean we pay what is it nine pounds in America you pay three or four hundred pounds for the same thing in this country we do not know how lucky we are with our, our NHS and I, I think, think deep down we do know it.
0: really it's but it is totally and utterly underfunded as we all know and let's hope the lessons we've learned from these this year and 220 is going to do something about it but then it's all to do with politics. So finally, ladies, I'll ask you, who would you recommend would be interested in reading this book? First of all, you, Felicity.
1: I think anybody who sort of sympathises with the, the plight of junior doctors and who like factual books to declare an interest and say, I don't read a lot of non-fiction. I'm very much a sort of fiction person. Right. So, But I do know a lot of other people who feel completely the opposite way. And they say they want to read about real life. Yes, yes. what goes on behind the scenes. So I think if you're that sort of person, you want to get, get an insight into what really goes on behind the scenes at an institution that's a huge part of all our lives, then it will be the book for you. And also, if you want something that's written in an extremely competent way by somebody who knows how to write, then, then that will be a positive as well.
0: Okay, and what about you, Jean?
3: I have a confession. When I was 18, I was a student nurse at Northwick, not Northwick Park, North London, Edmonton. Yeah. North London Hospital for nine months. And then it was six months of nights and I gave up, which was a great shame. Can you imagine me as a nurse? No, you can't. (laughs) It was pretty awe-inspiring. You had six weeks in the classroom and then you were out as a student nurse and you were above the enrolled nurses and you had a whole ward to yourself. And well, what can I say? How anybody came out alive, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But it's awe-inspiring what they do. Yes.
0: And Alice, how would you sum it up? Yes, well, I think I
2: think anybody who is uh, who is intending on restructuring the NHS, which is what the government want, are uh, planning on doing, isn't it? I think it's definitely a go-to manual for them to to have a read and actually find out what is going on at, at the coalface. I mean, one of the other things that she brought up was that was bed managers they had that poor child who was on death's door literally on death's door and if they ha- and the doctor basically stood up to the bed manager and said this child is being admitted now and is being taken down to surgery and they opened her up and she she literally would have died if they hadn't opened her up there and then she another 10 minutes and she would have been dead these really are life and death situations and administrators are preventing them to do it. But then they, but there again, it's their back as well, isn't it? They're up against it. They haven't got the funds. They haven't got the beds. They haven't got the nurses to look after the patients when they come out of recovery. So it's a catch twenty two if you look at some of the statistics on like cancer treatment and stuff like that we're actually falling behind most European countries have a much much better prognosis rate you know and it's quite shocking really that we it is so underfunded but as Jean says but we do also need to take responsibility for our own health. I mean, I'm trying to do this with being obese myself. I'm trying to lose weight and, you know, make myself healthy. I had salad and prawns for my lunch today <laughs> and nothing else. So, uh, you know, I'm doing my best. So we all have to take our responsibility to to make sure that we we look after ourselves and don't drink too much and don't smoke too much and just do things in moderation and, you know, and protect our NHS, which is what the message has been all through COVID. So that's, that's absolutely yeah.
0: Well, that is the review of Rachel Clark's Your Life in My Hands, a junior doctor's story. And it is very political, but it is a very interesting read. If you want to find out about the National Health Service and what actually goes on when those little swan's feet are whacking away, um, you certainly will uh, hear from Rachel Clark. Now, every month we're going to give you these Sunday Times bestselling books. And I'll run through them and then our reviewers can tell me if they've read them or not. So we're first of all going to hardback. One, Tap to Tidy by Stacy Solomon, a blend of organizing tips, personal stories and crafting activities from the popular TV personality. Number two, The Boy, The Mole, The Fox and The Horse by Charlie McEasy, an illustrated fable containing gentle life philosophy. Now I have read this many, many times and every time I read it, I cry. Have you ladies read this? No, no. you're shaking no. your heads. <laughs> it is beautiful. It is illustrated beautifully, and it would appeal appeal to children right through to oldies. It is beautiful, and I've given it to everybody I know who I love dearly and say, just read this book. I can't recommend it highly enough. Number three, Beyond Order by Jordan B. Peterson. A dozen more principles guiding readers to a more meaningful life, or Tales from the Farm by Amanda Owen, the star of Our Yorkshire Farm, shares more stories from Ravensea. And then we have number five, Tomorrow Will Be a Good Day by you-know-who, Tom Moore, the life of the inspirational centenarian who raised millions for charity. I did buy that for a friend of mine for Christmas. Number six, No One Can Change Your Life Except For You by Laura Whitmore. Inspirational life lessons from the TV presenter and broadcaster. Number seven, The Diaries, 1918-38 to by Henry Chips Channon. The Unfettered Observations of the Conservative Politician and Socialite. Number eight, You've Got This by Louise Redknapp. The singer-songwriter reveals personal stories and advice on embracing positivity. Number nine, All Dogs Great and Small by Graham Hall, the presenter of Dogs Behaving Very Badly shares stories and dog training advice. And finally, in the hardback section number 10, Call Me Red by Hannah Jackson, an insight into farming life and the values necessary to turn dreams into a reality. So how does that all hit you, ladies?
2: Well, I i mean, it's all, most of the, the writers there are sort of TV personality types, aren't they? And, and they fall into more advertising their TV programmes and then they get a book deal out of it. That seems to me. And, and
0: most of them seem to be factual as well. Improvement books, they're all non-fiction. Let me run through the paperbacks and then we'll have a chat about that as well. The paperbacks, number one, Becoming by Michelle Obama. Former First Lady of the United States on her upbringing life at the White House. I have read that and it was very, very interesting. Number two, Good Vibes, Good Life by Vex King. How positive thinking, self-love and overcoming fear lead to lasting happiness. Three, A Life Lost by Kathy Glass. The story of a volatile boy put into care by a mother crippled by grief. Four, The Kennedy Curse by James Patterson and Cynthia Fegan. The trials and tribulations of America's most notorious family five the book you wish your parents had read by Philippa Perry psychotherapist parenting wisdom Thinking, judgment six the salt path by Raina Wynn a couple of 32 discover the healing power of the natural world seven my garden world by Monty Don gardening writer and broadcaster celebration of the natural world around us eight atomic habits by James Clear the minuscule changes that can grow life into life altering outcomes nine behind the mask by Tyson Fury the two-time heavyweight world champion reveals the truth about his life and finally ten tall tales and wee stories by Billy Connolly who I adore a selection of anecdotes and illustrations from the popular comedian so as you say they are all reality aren't they I've read Becoming by Michelle Obama,
1: which I really enjoyed. I particularly found quite amusing the bits where she tries to sort of be polite about Donald Trump. You know, she's obviously decided that she's going to go for gracious and not absolutely slag him off. But kind of be, I don't know what you thought, Sue. Yeah, I, be, I thought. Between the lines, you could tell she absolutely loathed him. And it was oh, absolutely.
0: <laughs> but I always remember, and I quote this all the time. And she said, they go low, you go high.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. I, mean, I thought it, she's fascinating. And watch her one day. You never know. She might be the first female president of the United States.
1: Yeah. And it, and it really did come across. Obviously, he's a heavy hitter. So is she. And they're just such incredibly hard workers, I think, well, right, from, right from being children. So yes, I yes. found that really interesting. In my club that I'm a member of, in addition to this one, we read The Salt Path by Raina Wynne. It didn't get a very high score, put it that way. It wasn't a particularly popular one.
0: As we finish now, the recommendation of the book next month was from Felicity. So tell us what we should be reading for April, Fliss. So the book for next month is
1: The Thursday Murder Club by Richard Osman, who is uh, famous as one of the presenters of Pointless. It is a major bestseller, so I'm sure that
0: lots of people listening to this program will have heard of it lovely okay then so we have to rush out and and, and get the book so thank you very much ladies for reviewing your life in my hands I look forward to next month keep safe and we'll talk again soon so thank you Felicity and Jean and Alice and thank you for our first book club I do hope you've enjoyed it ladies
2: yes very
0: much Yes, Okay, we'll talk again soon. Take care now. Bye. Bye. bye, Bye. I am delighted to read a review from The Guardian's Nicholas Rowe about a new book by David Hockney and Martin Gayford called Spring Cannot Be Cancelled. I'm a huge David Hockney fan and can't wait to get the book when it is published. In the autumn of 2018, David Hockney made a brief trip to France. He wanted to look at art, paintings from Picasso's Blue and Rose periods, and the great tapestries of Paris, Angers and Bayeux, and to enjoy all that delicious butter and cream and cheese. As well as a country more smoker-friendly than mean-spirited England, he says. While in Normandy, Hockney declared a desire to capture the northern French spring, as he had done a decade or so before in East Yorkshire producing work that became the focal point of his blockbuster 2012 Royal Academy show, which I went to and it was absolutely brilliant. There are more blossoms there, he wrote to art critic Martin Gayford. You get apple, pear and cherry blossom, plus the blackthorn and the hawthorn, so I'm really looking forward to it. In impressively short order, a large half-timbered farmhouse 40 minutes from Bayou was acquired. It was a bit like Where the seven dwarves live in the Disney film, Hockney explained. There are no straight lines, even the corners don't have straight lines. Set in four acres and surrounded by meadows, orchards and streams, it was quickly renovated and within just a few months, Hockney was emailing out drawings from and of his new home to friends all over the world. For someone so closely associated with his locations, the blue Californian skies and swimming pools early in his career More recently, the muddy lanes and hedgerows of the Yorkshire Wolds, Hockney rarely stays in one place for long. He has made work in China, Japan, Lebanon, Egypt, Norway, and of course France. He lived in Paris for a couple of years in his mid 70s, and, as Gayford points out, while the new house was bought apparently on the spur of a moment, it was surely not entirely chance that an artist long admiring of French painting and the Gaelic way of living eating and smoking with a French assistant happened to find an ideal resting point just where and when he did. It was time for a new adventure. Gayford had been a friend and sort of Boswell to Hockney for a quarter of a century and has written two previous books that were both with and on the artist. He visited Hockney in France during the summer of 2019 and it was assumed he would return the following year. Of course that was not to be. But what had begun as one type of project soon turned into a different and larger one as Covid-19 exerted its grip? Perversely, the new restrictions on movement had presented an opportunity for Hockney. One of the selling points of the house was that he wouldn't have to drive anywhere to find his subjects, as it was all there, in the trees, streams and skies on his grounds. Now his patch of land became his sole focus and his excitement at the arrival of 220 Spring, one of the most abundant for decades, was palpable. It's spectacular, he wrote to Gayford, and I'm getting it down. Instantly, in those early days of the pandemic, the work became a source of hope and solace to a fearful public with his vivid iPad paintings of landscapes and still lifes from his garden made as the world locked down around him, appearing on the front pages of newspapers and on the BBC News. By now, Hockney and Gayford's conversation had moved to FaceTime. Gayford with a glass of wine in Cambridge, Hockney with a beer in Normandy, happily intrigued by the weirdly distorting light effects a dodgy Wi-Fi signal could render on the screen. This book is Gayford's record of their exchanges, placed within the context of a wider appreciation of Hockney and his work, of art history in general, and of some pleasingly digressive musings on the new things said and done by an old friend, and the thoughts and feelings they prompted in me. Gayford artfully deploys the notion of perspective, a long-standing artistic preoccupation for Hockney, as a recurring motive when examining the men's relationship as it evolves over time, with their vantage points equally recalibrated by major events. The pandemic, Gayford having a minor heart attack in January 2020, which required a stent, as Hockney had 30 years earlier, and by small observations about gardens or sunsets or rain. Gayford convincingly conveys Hockney's growing enthusiasm and energy for his task. When he alluded to Noel Cowd's dictum that work is more fun than fun, Hockney's rejoinder was to quote Alfred Hitchcock's variation on the old selling, All work made, Jack. Hockney's burst of productivity manifests itself in a constant stream of new images arriving in Gayford's inbox ready for distant scrutiny. Some of this work will feature in a new Royal Academy show due to open this May. Examinations of Hockney's lines made with crayons, charcoal, pencils and the ultra thin marks available via an iPad led Gayford to ruminations on drawings by Rembrandt and Van Gogh. Paintings of the garden expanded into thoughts on Monet. Mention of the work of Hockney's support team, Hockney often says we rather than I, spilled into assistance as a chadron of art, taking in Valescuas, Tintoretto, Rubens, Warhol, and Lucian Freud. Gayford is a thoughtfully attentive critic with a capacious frame of reference and his brief exertions into houses in art. Hockney's reading, Flaubert, Proust, Julian Barnes, his musical tastes, Wagner, and that almost definitive Hockney subject, the depiction of water, described by Hockney as always a nice problem for an artist. Consistently illuminate both Hockney's work and the other artist his work brings to mind. It should be added that the reader can see in the comprehensive illustrations almost everything Gayford mentions. While Picasso is the artist Hockney most often talks about, Gayford cites more often another favourite, Van Gogh, who liked to attach little sketches to his letters, much like Hockney does with his emails. Living in the scruffy outskirts of Arles and somewhat isolated as no one much liked him, Van Gogh just got on with making memorable and beautiful art with what was around him. The unprepossessing flat farmland of Hockney's Yorkshire and now Normandy would similarly be seen as not obviously ripe locations for such a close inspection. But as Gayford says, the moral is that it is not the place that is intrinsically interesting, it is the person looking at it. Following the spring, Hockney continued to capture his four acres on through the summer and the harvest and the glimpses of autumn moons in anticipation of this year's spring, for which he was intending to ban visitors to his home from March to May, lockdown or not. Spring Cannot Be Cancelled will be released on March 25th and can be available at any decent bookshop.